Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcasting on WKXLAM and FM. We are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And you can visit our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com for the latest and greatest in what we're doing. Our guest today is Angie Kiefler, Senior Vice President of Research at the Global Strategy Group. Now, the last time you folks thought about polling, it was probably November, and you were probably thinking something like, why are the polls so wrong again? 2020 wasn't a particularly great year for pollsters, at least the ones who released their work to the public. In the final three weeks of the election, national surveys of the presidential race were wrong by an average of more than six points, which, by the way, was about the same average error that we saw in 2016. Now, since then, there's been a lot of internal discussion among the political nerd set, of which we proudly proclaim ourselves members. Is something fundamentally wrong here? Why were polls so wrong in 2016? Relatively right, better in 2018, and then way off again in 2020. And what do we do if there's a problem with one of the major tools we use to understand public opinion and guide election campaigns in our democracy? So recently, the think tank, Third Way, convened a panel of talk experts to address the question, what's the future of polling? The panel was presented mostly to political insiders, but because we're moving beyond politics, we're bringing it to you. And Angie Kiefler, Senior Vice President of Research at Global Strategy Group, is one of the top experts in the field. Uh, her, her group, Global Strategy is absolutely tip top. I know them well. I think I even used them. They're well known in politics by America's leading corporations. Angie has done extensive political research for local, state, federal candidates, lots of members of Congress, lots of would-be members of Congress. She's led independent expenditure polling for governors, for Stacey Abrams and other members. She's one of the go-to consultants on American attitudes towards guns and gun violence, very much in the news these days. So Angie Kiefler, welcome to Beyond Politics. Great, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So there's been a lot of discussion among politics professionals that there might be some big problems with polling. So right. let's look at the high level. Yep. Is there a fundamental problem in polling that needs to be solved? Is it time for some major innovation in public opinion research or is polling basically working and there are some tweaks and problems and little things that need to be adjusted and solved? What's, what's the big picture? Um, fantastic question. I would say that um, we are still in the process of figuring some of a lot of this out. Um, I do, let's, let's back up a little bit um, and talk about um, sort of the disconnect between what people experienced on election night and what the polls said. Um, because I do think the conversation is a little bit broader than just what's wrong with polling. I think that is a significant part of it um, and one that absolutely needs to be addressed. And we have um, figured out some things, uh, assessments of what's wrong. But I think there was, for 2020 purposes, there was um, a confluence of factors that just came to a head uh, on election night that made a lot of people 
say polling is dead. What do we use it for? What's the purpose? It's not working. Something's terribly wrong. Um, with, so there's a few things. One, um, I want to separate out a little bit uh, between what um, internal polls and campaigns we're seeing and watching versus what public ones were, because there was the difference. Um, the public ones were way more off um, than our internal ones. Now, I don't say that to um, pass blame or judgment. We were off too. I'm just saying what we were looking at the day before the election was different because um, we had just access to a lot of late internal polls. So I woke up on election day thinking Biden was going to win, but not by a landslide, that the Senate was control was basically a coin flip, um, and that we retain the House. Uh, and by the way, it all was going to look terrible on election night because of how the votes were going to be counted with, with mail-in votes. That's fundamentally what happened. I will say, certainly, I was still surprised for the most part on what happened with the House. I thought we would um, uh, actually build our, our, our um, leadership or build our majority there a bit. We did not. I thought we would get more ticket splitters. We ended. We did not. Um, so that's sort of the, the thing. So, so we do have um, this problem with polls, some polls being very wrong, some polls in some places um, were correct. So we have, we have that issue. Then you also have this um, other factor in terms of the disconnect is that I do think there is um, a little bit of a misunderstanding um, of what a poll does and doesn't mean, right? Um, so, for example, most polls, unless you're polling right before uh, an election, um, are not actually intended to tell you the exact vote on election day. I know it shocks people to sometimes hear that, but that's not gen that's not what they're for. Um, so that being said, so there's a little bit of a mis misunderstanding about what a poll means and doesn't mean. And I think well, we as pollsters have to do a better job of telling that. Wait a second. Um, so wait I, a second. Yeah, wait, wait. I know. Wait. It's shocking, right? Hold on. I'm shocked. Yeah. I'm sitting here as a as a former multi-time right. candidate married to the work that Global Strategies and other great no. polling firms were doing for me all the way through the election, waking up every day, wondering what I was going to learn from the fabulous consultants I had paid so much for. And you're telling me, yeah, you shouldn't have bothered. No, not at all what I'm telling you. I'm saying, you know this, you were a candidate, right? The value of polling from a candidate perspective is primarily messaging and strategy, right? Like, so here's what the vote is now. And here throughout the course of the poll um, is what it could look like based on various messaging and turnout scenarios, right? Um, so that's really what campaigns use polls for um, to, to map that out. Um, now, I'm still, I'm still not um, uh, in any way object, objecting to the fact that some polls, especially the ones close to the election, were wrong. They absolutely will, and I can go through the stuff that we've found about why they were wrong too. Um, but, but I do think that the public, especially, would benefit, and I think not feel so misled um, if there were a more nuanced understanding. Um, of what campaign polling is intended to say and what it's not intended to say. And of course, the way most people experience polling isn't as a candidate, it's, Correct. you know, they're reading 538 or they're right. checking out the New York Times and they're just 
they're, they're using it more like a crystal ball, which is yeah. not the intended use. It's like, uh, it's like a Miss Cleo ad, you know, for entertainment purposes only. Right. And in fact, among political nerd circles, there has been a little bit of a debate about what yep. did go wrong with yes. the public polls. And it's been sort of encapsulated by what you might call the battle of the Nates. So on one side is the very famous Nate Silver at 538. And he recently published an article where he basically argued, look, the problem isn't how far off the polls are. Historically, they're kind of not that bad. So maybe we shouldn't be that worried about this. Mm -hmm. The other Nate at the New York Times is Nate Cohn. He says the problem isn't that the polls are off or not off. The question is, are they all off in the same direction consistently? Are they biased? And he means that in a statistical sense, not a, you know, like I'm biased against someone sense. So I know this is a little bit of a weedy argument, but it does seem to get to this fundamental question for, for our listeners out there who are worried, can I trust, am I gonna be able to trust what I see in these public polls next time? It does seem to boil down to this question. So could you unpack that a little mm -hmm. bit for our listeners? What does it mean? Is, yeah. that, is that the right thing to worry about that the polls are consistently missing in the wrong direction? In this case, they're, they're overinflating how well the Democrats are doing in the last two presidential elections. Is that the right concern? And if so, why, why might that be happening? Yep, great question. Um, I'll say a couple of things about that. One, I have a lot of things to say about that, but let me start with a couple of things. Um, I have great respect for both both the Nates, as we're going to call them. Um, I think they're very smart. Uh, I, I don't think this is. I don't think this is a problem that we can solve over Twitter. Um, I don't think we can like sort of pungentry our way out of this. It is really, really complex. Um, and I think the fact that you have two very smart people um, who are immersed in the data um, and coming to different conclusions is indicative of the fact that the answer is probably somewhere in the middle and the answer is probably really difficult. Um, I will just tell you from, from GSG's perspective, um, we have been working on this you know, since the day after the election. We've been investigating, um, we've been rerunning all of our data, we've been stacking it, we've been doing all sorts of statistical analysis on it. Months later, we are now at the point where we're like, okay, we, we think we have mostly diagnosed what went wrong. Um, we're not at the solution stage yet, right? Like we, we're not even at the, let's diagnose like how modes were different yet. Like there is, this is a complex thing that we need to spend some time um, working on. Um, so I do think the answer is like, it's hard and both of them are right in some way. So let me just talk a little bit about what, what we've diagnosed as, as the problem running, running all of our data. Um, fundamentally, what we've seen is that, um, we were underrepresenting, and I think this is probably not news to a lot of people who have been following it thus far. Um, we were underrepresenting um, Republican turnout. We just had too many Democrats, or we were expecting too many Democrats in our vote or in our electorate model. So, let, to explain polling a little bit, um, one of the misconceptions, too, about polling is polling can somehow predict turnout. It can't. Polling is trash at predicting turnout. That's not what it's intended for at all. So our polls are only as right as our ability to calculate who's going to show up on election day. 
And we do that by looking at who showed up in past elections, and because that's still the best way to do it, to be honest. Um, and so from that, we make predictions on the percent Democrat, the percent Republican, the percent independent, how many men versus how many women versus percent white, black, all of that. Um, and what we found is that we systematically did underrepresent um, Republicans, especially lower propensity Republicans, right? So those Republicans, the least likely to vote. Um, now, the problem is when we correct, when we correct for that in our post analysis, right? When we shift the numbers to say, okay, here is the couple points right Republican. We still don't get the right vote. Poll's still not fixed, right? So that tells us um, a, a couple of other things. One, that some of the partisan indicators that we have historically used to fix this, because to be clear, there was some indication that we knew this was happening while it was happening, right? So for example, personally, my big one of my biggest misses this year was Montana. Everyone got Montana wrong. All of the data in Montana was wrong. Um, yeah, and, and I was sitting there watching it come in, and I was like, this seems really rosy, <laughs> but all the, but everything looks right. Um, and when we fixed it to the, the right amount of Republicans, it still looked really rosy. Um, so we're, the other hard thing about states like Montana, though, is they don't have party registration, right? They, so you can't, you don't really have a great way to fix you know, the poll for, to get the right number of Republicans. So we, you know, use other things on the file, like as a model for what we expect their partisanship to be. But that turns out seems to be somewhat flawed as well. So we're, even when we try to correct for these things, we're actually undercorrecting. Now, the other thing we, if that's been the case, that means we are not actually getting the right Republicans in our poll. We are, we are missing some type of attitudinally different Republican. Um, when we've gone back in our analysis, and for a lot of our polls leading up to election day, we asked people who they voted for in 2016 to recall who they voted for. When we go back and we weight the data and change the data to reflect the actual 2016 vote between Clinton and, and Trump, so based on their vote recall, then we mostly correct the poll. So that is telling us that there is something different about the types of Republicans um, that Trump was able to bring out in 2016 uh, and 2020 um, that is the polls are just missing. Uh, and um, we've, we've started to play with some solutions. Like we, we, we don't know, like there's a lot of theories on social trust. Maybe it's the types of Republicans who um, just are, don't trust pollsters, don't trust institutions. Problem is we don't really have a way to measure that at the moment. Um, so we're playing with different ways to potentially do that. Um, we also, uh, you, you may re recall, because um, I heard, I listened to your uh, interview with uh, Mr. Anzalone, um, that response rates were great during the pandemic because people, <laughs> people were home. It was fantastic. Um, but maybe the types of Republicans who were listening to science and staying home and taking our polls um, we're not reflective of the diversity of Republican attitudes, especially the ones that were, were gonna come out for Trump. Um, and then the final factor you, you have here, a little bit uh, uh, related to, to the right kinds, but a little bit different is um, late movement. Um, 
we have seen the last couple cycles just a larger number of people moving at the end. And I think this is why some of the internal data that campaigns were seeing was a little bit more accurate because we were able, they were, were rolling, rolling tracking through election day, right? So we were able to see some of that, not all of it, again, to be clear, but some of it. Um, and just like, don't have a great way yet to predict where those late movers go, except increasingly um, they aren't going our way. <laughs> right, or democratic way. Um, and I think part of that is Democrats have been ready to vote against Trump and ready to vote against Republicans since 2016, right? They're not telling pollsters, you know, they're not undecided in any way. They're, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, Biden and I'm Democrat down the ticket. And so that's your Democratic vote share. Um, and so we, we also just as an industry have to figure out a better way to calculate that late movement. That was very long-winded. I apologize. No, it's it's not really long-winded at all because the answers are 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 complex and mm -hmm. and you know what what people see on television when Wolf Blitzer comes on TV and says in his stentorian tones, "We've got a poll that's showing X, Y, and Z," and you know there are two numbers up there. Oh, uh, Biden is ahead by twenty-seven points. Um, that's all that's all people see and 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 the general poll watching public does not understand the nuances of what goes into the polls or doesn't but one of the things that struck me from what you said it, it comes back to a subject that we have often discussed on this show which is the trump effect yeah the uh, the great the great golden goose himself and the effect he has had on the body politic and all of politics. I mean, the good, the good news for so many people is that, that even with all that's going on, there are many, many people who I've spoken to who, who are basically have taken a deep breath and a step backwards from engagement in politics and the news and everything else. And since Trump has has kind of somewhat disappeared off to Mar-a-Lago with his family playing golf. They're forgetting about him. But in terms of what the effect has been on the political universe, it seems that he totally scrambled everything that we might have thought predictive in the absence of Trump including what you've said about late breaking voters and a surge of Republicans and polls not being able to pick up uh, attitudinal Republicans who may by their nature not want to cooperate with the establishment and answer your darn polls, right. but we're going to get out and vote for our guy. So in, in the few minutes we have left, like two, um, is it going to get better? Yes. Um, maybe that feels like a bold statement, but um, I think for, I think it's going to get better because I'm confident in the number of very smart people we have working on this. Um, I think the, the history of polling has been one of evolution. Um, you know, we used to do polling where we knocked on people's doors. Um, I, I used to have a colleague that I worked with who would tell me stories about how 
um, they would you know, fill in the answers with a pencil and paper. Um, and then it was all phone and now we're evolving to online and now we're evolving to text. To, and so we've always been, we've always had to evolve. We've always had to adapt. There is this conversation about polling being deeply problematic, you know, every time we're forced to adapt. And it should, that, that should be part of the conversation, right? Because we should change. Um, and so I, I am confident that uh, we will be able to figure this out. That's not to say we won't discover new error um, as uh, elections continue, um, but we, we will adapt and change again. And I, I, I'm confident in our ability to do that. So has, is global strategy spending its time looking at what was wrong or are you, are you now looking at solutions? So we, we just finished the, here's the diagnosis of the problem or, or towards um, um, uh, that part or towards the end of that part. Now we are shifting to the, what are the solutions, right? And in that we're looking at, is there some type of mode effect? Meaning um, if they got the poll via online versus via text versus phone, right? What is the right makeup of that? Um, we're also looking at, are there other ways to try and account for um, these different attitudinally, attitudinally different Republicans. And by the way, sure, the problem was for Republicans this time, but that might not be true next time. Um, so these are all things that we are continuing to work on. And it's, it's not going to be easy to fix, uh, just to be honest. Like it, it is going to require, um, you know, potentially new types of questions on surveys, new predictive models built. Um, it's going to be, um, it's going to be a process. You did this really fascinating webs, webinar with the group Third Way recently. And one of the things you brought up is that there's a little bit of a difference between issue polling and horse race polling, campaign candidate polling. And it seems pretty helpful for our listeners for understanding that basic question of, can you really trust what you're seeing in public polls? You seem to suggest that the kinds of polls that we see about how people feel about issues have less of a challenge of yep. the kind that we're seeing with candidate polling. So if you see something from Pew Research or Gallup saying 60% of Americans support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which is a, a recent result, you can have a fair degree of confidence in that, that you might not quite feel as much about a horse race poll. Is that the case? And if so, why? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say all indications at this point point to it, point to issue polling being less problematic. Um, there was a great uh, recent study by Pew that people can check out where they reweighted all of their polls from the past year or so to the actual correct vote share um, for um, Biden uh, uh, and Trump. And that was a significant change in some of those polls. And yet, the questions on the issues um, uh, only changed by like a point or two at most three. Um, so there is some indication that uh, issue polling is not as um, is not as problematic. Part of the reason for that is well, there's a few things. One, a handful of points wrong on whether you support or oppose the minimum wage doesn't feel nearly as traumatic as a handful of point wrong um, on, a, on, a, on a candidate polls, right? So some of it is perception. Um, but also, uh, perhaps more importantly, is that on issues, we're just not as polarized as we are on our candidates. Um, 
you have you know, a significant portion of Democrats who believe um, the government shouldn't raise taxes and maybe should be a little bit smaller and maybe shouldn't defund the police. Um, you have a significant portion of Republicans who, um, a very significant portion of Republicans who believe um, we need to do more to reduce gun violence, um, that uh, we should protect abortion rights. Um, so you just don't have that same volatility. volatility. Now, the caveat to that, though, I would say, and this is something, you know, have me back in a few months and maybe I have a better answer for you, is that if we are fundamentally really missing something on the type of Republican that is being missed in these candidate polls, and somehow the issue you are um, asking about is connected to that attitudinal difference, then we may have a problem, right? Um, so for example, and I'm going to try to explain this without getting too in the weeds and also again, big caveat being we're still studying this. One of the things in our, when we're trying to sort of figure out what are the right um, uh, attitudes and demographics to, to wait to, to get the, to get the polls right, um, is on the voter file that most uh, uh, pollsters use, um, there's a bunch of these different attitudinal models, right? So an attitudinal model is, so the, the very basic way to explain it is, for example, on party. Um, there is a model that gives each individual voter a score uh, on whether they are uh, on the likelihood, the probability that they are a Democrat. Um, there's models for all sorts of things. There's models for choice. There's models for guns. There's models for m all numbers of things. Uh, and we're trying them all, to be clear. One of the things um, that our very primary research has shown is that um, there's this camp, there's this um, college funding model, and it predicts how likely someone is to support more government action in helping people have the funds to go to college. It seems in our initial runs of things, runs of data, um, that if we um, wait to that model, that our poll was actually missing a lot of people who believe we shouldn't be helping people go to college. Right, right, like shouldn't be providing as much funds for people to go to college. So there's something about that attitude that seems to be more reflective of the Trump voter that we missed. So then maybe if you are asking your issue on your poll is about college funding, then maybe that's a little bit more wrong. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that yet. But I'm saying it overall issue polling is far more um, um, solid and less volatile than candidate polling. So I have a lot more um, faith and trust in that in the moment. And yet there are potentially some things that we still need to look at. So this is kind of fascinating to me, <laughs> but I'm a, I guess I'm sort of a political nerd, uh, having, having run for office, having been in office, having uh, won some and lost some and followed politics. I guess I qualify as a nerd. So frankly, the idea that I, we can get a better idea about issues from polls than about the vaunted horse race that everybody looks at is, is fascinating to me. But does it really matter um, at the end of the day? I mean, for average voters who, who may or may not care about issues and who may or may not even make the connection between issues and candidates, because uh, my pet theory is 
that nobody votes on issues except maybe 12 people on either end of the political spectrum. And for everybody else, it's a, oh my goodness, okay, I guess I better go vote. Okay, now I'm behind the curtain. I got the pencil in my hands. And what do I, how, how am I feeling today? Uh, guy, I don't like that guy, his hair is orange. Or I don't like that guy, he has hair, hair implants. I think, yeah, I, I guess I'll do this. And it's kind of a, a fuzzy, emotionally based uh, voting. So, so why will our average voters and average listeners to our show care about getting opinion research surveys and campaign polls right if this fuzzy business is susceptible of so much right and wrong? And you can say those are better than these, but we're trying to figure it out, but we don't know. Why should anybody care? About issue polls? About the whole thing. The whole, the whole schmear, as they said in my old neighborhood, the schmear, the yeah. whole thing, issues and yeah. opinions. And what what does it matter if it's all too fuzzy to figure out? Well, honestly, if, if I can say something potentially uh, a little controversial, I wish, yes, please. I wish the public would care less about polls. I really do. It would, it, it, there's too much crap out there. Um, and it, it requires, um, at the risk of sort of uh, uh, sounding, um, you know, too elitist, like it, it, <laughs> it requires actually some training and experience in being able to read them properly and to interpret them properly and analyze what they do and do not mean. Um, and so you have a lot of people, you know, listening to whatever uh, station of their political choice saying XYZ person is ahead um, by five to six points, and they think XYZ person's gonna win by five to six points. That's not what it means. Um, and so I, I, I do think the public should just maybe calm down on polls. I really do. You, you'll be so much more happy. And, um, and that, that can, um, I just think like it's, it, it has not in many ways helped our discourse to have a lot of people feel like they're experts on polls. But you know, Wolf Blitzer's job is not to make people happy. That's Wolf Blitzer's job is to sell advertising. Yeah. And, and, and for that, what he wants to sell is a horse race. And, and the polls provide a very convenient vehicle for Wolf to sell horse races. Now I'm picking on Wolf, but it happens to be the same with Fox News, although I don't watch enough of it, frankly, to know whether or not they even put up numbers. I'm, I'm, I, and I don't mean to be overly elitist about it. I just don't watch them. But for MSNBC, the, the same, the same thing. Polls are 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 exciting. Yeah. When the New York Times puts it on its front page, the latest New York Times poll, it sells newspapers. People want to see a horse race. So I'm just curious now that now that we've established that. That that you're you're trying to argue yourself out of a job by saying that people <laughs> no. shouldn't really pay attention. My stuff doesn't go on TV or go. Uh, my stuff's not public, so uh -huh. not my job. That's right. So should should the media be educating citizens uh, when they talk about polling? Is should the should schools be educating people about polling? Should that be part of the civic curriculum? for the American citizen in the modern age about how to deal with the barrage of polling? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think it should start with we as pollsters doing a better job um, of talking about our polls, of talking about the range of things that they could mean. 
So let me just give you an example of something that I do. Um, when I talk to my clients about a poll, I never use the margin. I never say you're up by four points, never. Um, I doesn't mean they sometimes don't say that to me, um, but I say you're at 48% and your opponent is at 44%. And that may seem like a small thing, but it actually matters because the thing that a lot of people sticks in people's minds is four points ahead, four points ahead, four points ahead. And then the, the answer though is like, you have a lot of people undecided there. You don't really know what they're gonna do on election day. Um, and so the answer is likely not, you win by four points. So that's just like a small thing, but I do think there's just more as pollsters, especially the public pollsters, which um, I think you should definitely uh, talk to, um, uh, uh, should, should be doing more when they release their polling about here's what this poll is actually telling us about this point in time and about the things that could happen next. All right, so I'm gonna try and one-up Paul here. Paul asked a challenging question to a pollster, actually, and you gave a very elegant response. <laughs> I'm gonna ask a potentially asinine question to a pollster, and uh, I, I, I'm not sure I'm gonna get away with it. I'm concerned that, is it possible that not the public polling, but what you do, that what, what we've been exposed to in our careers, Paul and I working on campaigns, the internal polling, the, the message testing, what, what campaign pollsters do to try to create a roadmap, because that's really what pollsters do. Matter of fact, my very first campaign manager training I, what, what the DCCC, the, the Congressional Campaign Committee for the Democrats, what the expert there told me when I was a young whippersnapper was, look, if you're running low on money in your campaign, the last thing you cut is your pollster. He's probably an ex-pollster um, because it's so important to understand that roadmap for where you're going. So yeah. here's the challenging question. Yeah. Is it possible that we're kidding ourselves with polling? And what I mean, because I have obviously great respect and good friends who are pollsters, but I'm really concerned about this sort of Heisenberg uncertainty problem when it comes to polling. We are now aware because of the work of behavioral economists of so many cognitive biases, mm -hmm. so many effects that happen because of the mode, you refer to the mode of polling. If you're reaching people on the phone, if you're reaching people by text, the awareness they have that they're under observation, which comes up in focus groups all the time, the artificiality of a poll. I mean, it's a, obviously it's a very robust result. You're the expert that question wording matters a great deal with the kinds of results you get. So my worry is that we might be kind of fooling ourselves. We are used as Democrats to thinking, as Paul just said, well, you know, if, if people support issue X and we talk about issue X, then people will vote for us. But I'm not confident that people are accurately reflecting their feelings when we ask them about it, or that we understand the proper relationship between their feelings on issue X and their ultimate decision to turn out and to vote for my candidate. What do you make of my whole worry here? Is there something to this? Is this something you worry about? Because this is your expertise. Yep. And, and by the way, the only thing I'll add is, of course we worry. We're Democrats. We were born to worry. That's what we do best is worry. But we, we can, should be worried. We if should we're doing be. things all wrong. <laughs> so it's a fantastic question. And I think it's an entirely fair question. And one... Um, that we do struggle with. And the answer is, if, if I can be um, a little self-promoting here, that's your difference between really good campaign posters and not. Um, 
I fully agree with what you and Paul said is that most people don't vote on the issues. A lot of the candidates will come to me and they'll be like, okay, what issues are we gonna test? And, and I go, well, test whatever you want, but let's be clear, that's not why they're gonna pull the lever for you one way or the other. Certainly there needs to be some conversation because you can't be, you can't, the more important thing is you can't just sound like you have nothing to say, right? When it comes to the issues. Um, we, need to, we need to take into account a larger psychology of the voter. Um, and how they make decisions. And that's polling, but it's also a lot of qualitative, right? It's talking to them in a focus group. It's talking to them one-on-one -on -one sometimes. It's asking them questions about how they make decisions, asking them questions about um, the types of leaders that they want, um, about what they find wrong uh, in um, uh, with our, our political discourse, with our, our the type people in Congress now. Um, let me give you an example of something um, that we've, we've started doing in the last cycle or so. You guys are both familiar with most uh, 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 campaign polls, right? So you have an issue battery or message battery, right? Where you have a three or four sentence message about healthcare, a three or four sentence message about um, uh, guns and so on and so on and so forth. That's traditionally how it's done. And you ask each person, how convincing is that? Okay, well, the problem is, and we started to see this, especially this last cycle, yes, healthcare scores really high on that all the time, healthcare, 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 healthcare. But as healthcare has been really co-opted and adopted by Democrats and talking about it as Democrats, it's become this Democrat issue, right? And if you are in a race where you're in like an R2 or R5, and that just means like a, a more Republican place, right? It doesn't matter the issue you're talking about. You just can't sound like a typical Dem. Your whole, the whole thing you need to do to win is not sound like a partisan Democrat because that's just what people don't like. They don't want a partisan who's just gonna vote the party line. So what we've started doing is splitting the sample, right? So half the sample here's the convincing um, uh, uh, way of it. And the other half the sample here's, okay, um, knowing nothing about the candidate, do you think a Democrat says this, a Republican says that, or an independent says that? And then you cross them and you make them into this matrix. And that way, you the, the sweet spot on the matrix uh, is um, those uh, uh, messages that are convincing, but also not triggering a, here's a typical Dem, here's a typical Dem, here's a typical Dem. And I, I maintain that there are some races where we have been able to protect our brand by doing it that way. There's been ads that we have run some of the races that I've worked on, on issues that do not test well in a traditional convincing battery. Um, but when you have all of these ads you have to run in a campaign, you need to infuse some like shock value type issues that they don't expect to come from a Democrat's mouth. And so I would say, yes, the traditional way of polling and figuring out what people will convince people is somewhat problematic. And so we have to evolve in that way as well. So what impact has there been on the rising tide? We've certainly seen it in New Hampshire and we've certainly seen it nationally of independent voters. Um, most of the electorate now is independent yep. and the far left and the far right. And, and I use far in, in its best sense are, are, are smaller than the large majority of people who are in the middle. What, is that, what does that mean for polling? And then how should people understand 
um, what, 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 and what can we do to give people a better understanding of what polling is doing? So to your, uh, to your independence um, uh, line of thought, um, yes, increasingly people are um, identifying as independent. That doesn't mean they're actually independent. <laughs> it means they really don't like the partisan rancor coming out of Washington. Um, and we're seeing more over the last few cycles of an abandonment of the Republican registration of the Republican brand. And a lot of people get really excited about that, but those people aren't re-registering as Democrats, right? Um, they are going to, to uh, 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 in, they're calling themselves independent, but it doesn't necessarily mean um, that they are um, adopting all of the traditional democratic issue stances by any means. Um, our job then, frankly, again, gets a bit harder, and we need to make sure that when we're making all of these changes to uh, make sure we get the right attitudes of each of these Democrat, Republican, uh, and independent, that we also are reflecting the full range and diversity of our independent block as well. All right, Angie, I am going to give you the lightning round question. You get about a minute for it. The whole point of the webinar you just did with Third Way was to look at the future of polling. So in five or 10 years, if we circle back and you know we're, we're doing this show, what is that future going to look like? It's a great question. Um, I think for sure, and we didn't really get a chance to talk about it, but for sure there is going to have to be a lot more mixed mode um, polling out there. And what I mean by that is um, right. Previously, the gold standard has been considered phone polls, um, but that's just not working anymore because we're missing people. Uh, and so we've been experimenting with doing polls that, yes, have a component of phone, but also have a component of online panel and also have a component of texting people. Um, we've started, you know, even looking at getting people from Facebook to take their poll that way. We just have to reach out to more places. Um, all of these different modes have their own internal inherent air. They all have air. Um, the idea is though, if you bring more people in from different ways, you are offsetting uh, all of that various air. The next step is really figuring out what the right mix of those different modes are. This is Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson, Angie Kiefler. Thank you so much for joining us from Global Strategies Group to talk about polling. Folks, you can listen to our podcasts at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. That's the website. Subscribe, follow us, love us. We love you. We'll be back next week with more Beyond Politics. <laughs>